Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to the Binge Movie Podcast, in which a couple of homos review the latest movie theater releases. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and today we're going to take a look at three movies. La La Land, Collateral Beauty, and Girls Lost. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge being our highest rating. Consumer moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Nice to you, short for that mess. <laughs> um, Jason, what's up with you? Well, thank you for asking. I, I feel like I always want to ask, it, like, what is up with you? <laughs> like you're doing something off you, character. You can ask me what my damage is, and I will do my best to answer. What's your damage? Um, so it was a long weekend for me of holiday parties. Friday night was the Peaches Christ holiday party, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, I actually got a gift that I need to show you as soon as we take a pause. <laughs> um, and I uh, went home, although, with some vintage gay porn on VHS, which is not super useful, but I'm going <laughs> to hold on to anyway. Saturday night was my work holiday party, and I found out something. I thought I had to find time, and I found out something yesterday that has me just overwhelmed with regret. Someone said to me, hey, did you hear who the celebrity DJ was on Saturday? And I was like, What's, what, what do you mean? And they're like, yeah, we did a celebrity DJ. I'm like, why didn't anyone say anything? And they're like, oh, I don't know, but it was Samantha Ronson. What? I'm like, Samantha Ronson was there? The and whole time. didn't do anything? And those fucks didn't even say it? Mm. Uh, and I don't know if she was just like, please don't tell them it's me. I don't know. <laughs> She's mm. like, I need a couple of bucks. I'm going to do this corporate holiday party. And I'll plug my laptop in for a few hours and then hit the goddamn road. But <laughs> if you think that I will not go to my grave knowing that I could have gawked at Lindsay Lohan's once and forever lady love in person and that I didn't know I had the opportunity that I didn't do it. You don't know me because this is going to be a lifelong regret. That's a sad day for you. It's a very sad day. I feel devastated because, you know, looking at the dance floor briefly, it became very clear it was a hotbed of humiliation. And I did, <laughs> so not, was ours. I did not want to approach it. So it was ours. So I went nowhere near it. And I saw like someone drunk dressed as Santa dancing. I'm like, nope, I will oh my be God. in the corner somewhere else. But oh, so that was very upsetting. Sunday. We had our San Francisco Film Critics Circle voting meeting. Oh, right. Was it a fist fight? Was it an all-out brawl? It was a lot more. We really powered through this year. We got done in under three hours, uh, which was kind of record time. Um, We were really feeling Moonlight. We gave Moonlight the vast majority of our awards. Mm -hmm. uh, Best film, best director, best supporting actor. Um, We really went whole hog on Moonlight. Um, and uh, we gave us actress to Isabelle Huppert, and uh, and we the most exciting thing to me, well, two two things actually. We have one special award we give to a little scene independent film every year that we feel like just didn't get enough play and mm-hmm. not enough people know about, and um, we gave it to The Fits. Oh, nice! That was a great yes. movie. Yes, a film that we loved here at the mm-hmm. binge. Starring a woman, a young lady with the world's finest name, Royalty Hightower. Mm-mm-mm. So, uh, Star is born in that one, and mm, um, and we singled out The Fits, and The Fits has been available to watch um, on VOD services for a while. So guys, if you haven't already, check out The Fits. It's so cool. And most importantly to me, we gave our Marlon Riggs Award, which is awarded to a barrier filmmaker who represents courage and innovation. Um, we gave it to Joshua Grinnell. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, um, multiple time co-host. 
um, received the award. I got Congratulations. to I got to make a pitch in the room for him, and then it kind of got like plus one by a few other people who've been who have you know who have known him and, and appreciate his work. And um, and we took down the crones from the chronicle and, uh, <laughs> and then the chronicles for sure. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I, I was feeling very good about it. That's awesome. Um, so uh, so what our- one best animated feature. It was called the Red Turtle. What's that? <laughs> I have not seen it. Um, Who that? Uh, <laughs> it, it was down to that. Our top two were like that and Kubo and the Two Strings, and somehow wow. the Red Turtle won. And I don't know why. Um, I trust the opinion of a, a friend from work who's a big animation buff who saw it in Toronto this year and was not impressed. Um, mm. So, but anyway, it won. Um, Zootopia Moana, Moana did not make <laughs> the final two. Poor Moana. When will she get her day? Who knows? But uh, anyway, uh, so it, it was a, a long and, and productive weekend, and uh, now here I am. Um, but Rebecca, what's up with you? Uh, not too much. Uh, I actually wanted to talk to you about something that I was thinking about this morning. Um, mm. One movie, unfortunately, we won't get a chance to review this year is the new Star Wars movie, right. uh, Rogue One. Yeah. Um, but I had been, I've been trying to avoid news kind of a bit. News. Uh, news. Um, but I had seen some uh, stories about how uh, there's like a huge um, online battle against Rogue One from wow. the Trump group. I don't know um, if it's a huge online battle. I think it's one of those things where it's like five assholes and then everybody reports on it. Well, I mean, that's what they said about the Ghostbusters thing. And then that kind of like made a big It made it, it a big impact impacted the film on... negatively. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I was sort of wondering, do you think that this could do damage to... Um, a franchise as like embedded in that culture almost mm-hmm. um and by that culture i mean you know uh basement dwelling weirdos right um do you think it'll make an effect on how the movie performs and if so do you think that like we're in this new world of like what movies will get made based on like you know sort of the politics and like the reddit community and twitter trolls and well i think that i think that in the case of rogue one that it genuinely is not going to be impacted mm. um it's already been tracking to break every record um, in terms of opening, in terms of long haul, it is tracking to be like an all-time record breaker. Hmm. So no, I don't think that. I don't think, and I also don't think like it's actually the same base. Um, I think just because people who appreciate Star Wars tend to be, you know, internet nerds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a gazillion internet nerds who are not also hateful racists. Uh, so that is true. That so is true. I think there's still more than enough non-racist, non-hate monger internet nerds to put Rogue One over the top. And I think that, you know, the backlash against Rogue One, um, such as it is, um, is, I mean, to me, it just doesn't have the same sting as the one that Ghostbusters had. The Ghostbusters one was so huge and so coordinated and it just didn't have people in its corner because it also represented something that everybody already hates, which is unnecessary remakes and reboots <laughs> so that already had that going against it mm-hmm. and um and i think that's why it was easier to take it down and so this isn't considered a remake or a reboot this um... is no this is just like the latest chapter in the story okay um yeah star wars has somehow taken itself out of that conversation because it kind of started the whole thing yeah um, yeah absolutely and uh so this is i mean it, it's interesting that they're doing this like a star wars story they're doing these standalone movies now um, but uh, I think you know people will take it. They're like, okay. I think as long as they're good, people will take them. And this one, from what I've heard, is supposed to be um, totally passable. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how you know the main character uh, is being taken over as a woman, and there are so mm-hmm. many people of color, and how it's like you know people who don't like SJWs, um, social single justice, Jewish women, social justice warriors. Oh. 
Um, you know, that there aren't any like strong, there's no Harrison Ford, there's no strong male lead. And that, um, like there's this group, uh, on the internet that's just like, oh, we're the dark side actually. And, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of like aligning with that. Right. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see. I I was sort of thinking about like Hollywood in the fifties, like during the MacArthur era, there was McCarthy. Uh, yeah, during the McCarthy. <laughs> Thank you. During the McCarthy during era. The MacArthur Park era. Um, yeah, during the General MacArthur era in the forties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Anyway, um, you know, a lot of directors and writers wrote movies that were like yeah. clearly anti-communist. Uh, right. And then there were still some that tried to like subvert the message right. Went and underground um, and wrote between the lines. Right. And there was some some messaging there. I wonder right. how that. What's in store for movies? going forward this is a question i think everyone's asking because as we've talked about so many times in this show for the studio it comes down to money and what makes money Mm -hmm. and they are going to give people what they think will make money and i don't think that they at the end of the day you know like will things get softer with their kind of progressive messaging it's possible i think this is really going to be kind of like a a dark night of the soul for hollywood because on the one hand they are just in a business they're in the business of making money but on the other so many creatives are so fundamentally torn mm-hmm. um well not even torn are just fundamentally opposed to their very cell to everything that trump stands for right that i can't imagine that you know i think there's going to be a resistance yeah. uh, of sorts i can't imagine it going whole hog i can't imagine it going because even in the mccarthy era of course there were people like dalton trumbo yeah um you know there were people who were on the blacklist there were people who wouldn't name names who wouldn't cooperate and you know in hall you know creative types have always tended to be more liberal more progressive and i think that right now um there's a lot of people who are in the show business uh you know industry who are going to feel like you know like yeah even though this is like my how i make a living you know i'm not going to participate in something that's going to you know really strengthen um Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. uh trump or that's going to be some kind of propaganda that's going to reinforce the bigotry uh, that some of his followers uh, believe in. And I guess we don't have the studio system, so it's not like people have to make a movie they don't believe in no, necessarily. No, and I know that even like, I mean, Sundance has already said that they're going to like be having some kind of like anti-Trump thing um, when they have, you know, starting off in January. So, Oh, really? And just the fact that like no one's even playing his inauguration yet. Like maybe Kanye. Yeah. Oh, um, right. Um, um, but, you know. Well, like Ted he, Nugent. Well, I mean, I don't think he's been officially announced, but, you know, and they had like Jackie Avancho signed on to sing the national mm-hmm. anthem. So and I think, you know, can we all agree that like we will all boycott the rest of our lives? Anybody who plays the inauguration. Yeah. Watch out, Garth Brooks. And well, he, he dropped out of it. Oh, I did heard. he? Yeah. But Kanye is still a maybe. So like, I know we all want to forgive Kanye and act like he's somehow above the law because he's so crazy. But we have to boycott him forever if he plays the inauguration. Definitely been seeing a lot of, this is the last draw from Kanye. This is like the yeah. one you How can't many, make excuses yeah. for him anymore. This is the one, like, yeah, I mean, like, there's been so many. And this is the one where it would just be, there's no going back from this no. at all. So Absolutely. anybody who plays it, boycott forever. <laughs> um. So shall we? Oh, we're going to start off strong today. Starting we're going to start off, off strong. Starting off with the movie of the year in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and definitely our pick of the week, La La Land. Pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick, pick, pick is the pick, pick of the week. week. Mia, an aspiring actress and Sebastian, a dedicated jazz musician, struggle to make ends meet while pursuing their dreams in a city known for destroying hopes and breaking hearts. Here's to the ones who dream. Foolish as they 
Those of you at home um, were not lucky enough to hear Jason sing along with um, with that song. I mean, if you want me to sing it right now, I feel like you're. Kind I'm of, not. You're, no, you're hinting that you might. Why did Why did we start with that? Uh, so we picked that clip because all the trailers were songs in the movie, and we went with the chorus from a song Emma Stone sings toward the end of the film called Audition. Audition. Uh, because it speaks to what the movie La La Land is about. Uh, you know, uh, here's to the ones that dream, hopeless though it may seem, here's to the hearts that ache, here's the mess we make. And, uh, I know the words because I have watched this movie four times now. <laughs> um, three of them in the last week. <laughs> and and not, not ashamed to admit to you. With a Q&A. And, uh, yeah, one time with a Q&A with, um, the director-writer Damien Giselle, the music writer... Justin Hurwitz and stars Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Um, and uh, previously met all of them but Gosling at a meet and greet that we had for the film Greek Circle back in like October. Oh, right. There's a was. photo with you and Emma Stone. She's really tall, isn't she? She is very tall. I found that out when I talked to her for the help in 2011. I was like, bitch is tall. Um, <laughs> that's like your inner loud. monologue. Yeah, constantly. You're just walking around like, hungry. Yeah. Bitch is tall. <laughs> just observational. Um, and calls them like I sees them. Um, so, um, How was the, were there a lot of gauze heads there? Well, they, um, so the Q&A was conducted by Chris Columbus of Mrs. Oh. Doubtfire fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he had just finished watching the movie um, 45 minutes before the Q&A. And he was still visibly devastated from watching the movie. <laughs> and he kept saying, he was like, I mean, I am destroyed. And then he kept wanting to talk about the ending. Because, oh, no, but it was you, the Q&A was before. Yeah, you guys it was the before the movie. And he kept wanting to be just like, I mean, did you guys set out to destroy people? <laughs> um, and you could just feel like this tension, like, stop talking about the ending, you stupid fuck. And, um, and then being a filmmaker, all his questions were for the filmmakers. Mm. And so Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are just sitting there. Um, not wishing they were being asked questions by any means, um, but maybe perhaps wondering if this was the best use of their time. Right, right. And um, and then eventually he was able to like coax himself into asking each of them like a single question. Oh wow, what a bummer! And bummer. <laughs> and, and you could just feel the tension in the room that like the longer he would go without letting Ryan Gosling speak. Mm. Um, so you could just you could feel this kind of like gr- like these growing kind of like basic bitch kind of like that's why I'm dazzling a question um, and that was just coming from you and that was and, and, I, and the, the girls next to me were just like right and uh, so we were all on the same page about that <laughs> and um, but anyway yeah so there was a Q&A and whatever um, it was a boring Q&A um, not, gotcha. much, not much to be gleaned from it this movie I feel like I've been talking about for three months without stopping and, um, and this is sort of like the culmination of that now Finally, get it we get all to do, out. We get to do our official review of it. Um, so we called it back in Toronto, ding, that the two biggest ones coming out of it were going to be La La Land and Moonlight. Mm-hmm. And now here we are. And these are the two leaders of the pack going Remember into award season. Remember talking about Birth of a Nation? Uh, different times. Different times. A different world times. away. And, uh, and, and as we said on the show... Um, Controversy aside, it's just a lesser film. Yeah. It's just a lesser Absolutely. film. Absolutely. It did not deserve to be in the awards conversation in the first place. No. Um, so, but Moonlight and La La Land both certainly do. 
And um, and on Sunday at the Film Critics Circle v- uh, uh, voting meeting, we continually found ourselves having to debate their merits over and over and over again because they were the yeah. final two in many categories. And they're just so different. They're so completely different. So uh, the, the world's big enough that we can love both of these movies. Absolutely. And I certainly do love both of these movies. Do you? Uh, absolutely. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Love both of them. Yeah. Um, but La La Land is ultimately, uh, I mean, they both have a certain, you know, you don't, you can't say that they're completely the opposite movie of one another because they both kind of have this sort of like lyrical kind of stylized look to their cinematography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, they both are kind of about, uh, and I'll figure this out when I figure out what the connective thread is through all these movies, but <laughs> um, you know, they're both about, uh, you know, pained hearts. They're both about, you know, <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> yes. with that pained hearts. <laughs> uh, so same movie is what I'm saying. Uh, but So uh, question for you. Do yeah. you think that uh, people who don't like musicals will like La La Land? Um, I think that they might. Um, so I feel like I need to, it, it just takes, it's so loud in my head. I need to address La La Land's haters. Okay. Um, of which it has a, an outspoken, um, a community of them. I feel like if you hate this movie, you just hate joy itself. Uh, <laughs> I just don't. And like, and I'm not a Pollyanna by any means, you know, no. like I, I, you know. You're but not th- upworthy worthy. I am not, and I never will be. But this movie, I just love with my whole heart. And people keep trying to ding it because they're like, oh, it's too eager to please. I'm like, why is that a thing that you're mad about? I mean, do you um, dislike puppies? <laughs> I was like, do you dislike your children <laughs> when they're trying, like, making drawings for you and giving them to you? Because they're eager to please you, you fuck. <laughs> um, and they're like, oh, well, it's too, it's, it's too eager to please. Oh, it tries too hard. It's too try hard. And like this is this is the same bullshit people said about Hillary Clinton. Like, oh, she tries too hard. She wants it too bad. That she's too eager to please. Like, and like, look where that got us. Yes, yeah. I'm, it's the same thing when we're talking toe to toe, one to one. Same thing. Um, so I just don't understand um, criticism in this movie. I think that the criticism that I have heard more that I can kind of get is people think that the music is actually not like melodic enough or memorable enough. Mm, mm-hmm. Because yeah. the thing about this movie is that it's kind of, it's like a jazz musical. Um, so it kind of has a lot of the same melodic themes that it just repeats over and over and over again. It doesn't have that many standalone songs. Like standalone songs, it has maybe like six or seven. I feel like it's sort of like a halfway between a non-musical movie and it. it's like a half musical. Well, it, it, yeah. It's I mean it's definitely you know peppered with songs and it, the first song off the bat is like straight up mm-hmm. 50s style color palette you know shut down the highway mm-hmm. musical right bursting with um, energy there's but, nothing else like it that follows no it. exactly like yeah. th- that's like the, the only sort of part that's like that the rest of it feels like you know it's a movie about singers maybe um, and I actually thought the movie kind of re uh, reinvestigating um, jazz outside of the movie. So I wasn't like drawn mm. back to the soundtrack, but I was like, oh God, I haven't listened to jazz in like a long time. And mm. I went back and found some new old Japanese jazz and that I found that really fulfilling. Rebecca but... is in a pretentious jazz period now because of La La Land. <laughs> Sorry to everyone in her Maybe orbit. that's why the haters come from. This is what it does to people. It ruins them. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a sung through kind of musical. I mean, one of Chazelle's main inspirations that he's talked about endlessly is the films of Jacques Demy, the French filmmaker of the '60s and '70s, who made his most famous film is *The Umbrellas of Cherbourg*. Mm, yes, um, and uh, this movie is very similar to mm-hmm. that. And it's kind of tonally, it's similar. It's bittersweet, like that film is. The color palette similar to that film. 
And, you know, it's similar in the sense that it's kind of like, it's not a lot of really huge melodies. Yeah. It's just kind of like there's a lot of like almost incidental music and, and you know, it's just jazzy and it feels like there are like fragments of, of song that'll like come and go. And um, and then you you will hear the same handful. There are like two or three melodies that you'll hear yeah. over and over and over uh, in the movie. And, um, but I have, not, yeah, as I said, I've watched this movie now four times. And uh, upon watching the second time, I found all the music way more memorable. And it really was more impactful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and people also want to try ding it because they're like, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling can't sing. But it's not, again, it's not that kind of musical. No. Like, you know, it's not about belting. Uh, this no. isn't Dream Girls. Uh, you know, like it's, you know, like they are, it's like they're singing their kinds of, it's, that's why it's like a sung through musical. You're, you're almost kind of seeing dialogue at times, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, they both have kind of these imperfect, um, kind of airy voices. Um, and, uh, but they can carry a tune. Uh, of course you could argue that that's, you know, they could be auto-tuned, but it certainly doesn't sound like they're being auto-tuned. <laughs> no, they sound very, like they sound very like natural. And so, in some of the scenes you can tell that they're singing live yeah. in front of the camera. They're definitely, they're like passable singers and dancers. I um, think dancers, so they're it's... great. Oh, really? I mean, I thought that they were, I mean, they, they have a lot of, the choreography in this film is pretty demanding at times. I guess like I sort thought. of like when you, when you don't see tap dance that often, you're like, is that good? I'm not exactly sure what the scale is here. It, to me, it felt like, you know, not quite as um, bold as it would have been in, in old, some, some older movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it it doesn't focus on it so much that it's that it's like something they try to do and fail at. Well, and another thing that this movie does over and over is, is it has these very long single takes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, which when you watch it again, you really start to be like, oh, God, like, oh, they're still going. Yeah. Um, and so like probably the biggest dance number the two of them have is the one as like dawn is breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and there or I don't know if that's supposed to be dawn. No, or, I think it's or, dusk. Or dusk. Dusk. OK. Yeah. No, you're right. It is dusk. Um, and there are, it's kind of near Griffith Park. Uh, you know, it's just up in, up in the hills. It's like a party in the hills. And they're looking out over, um, you know, over the city. And they have this breathtaking dance number that is what you see in all the artwork for the yeah. movie mm-hmm. um, is a still from that and it's all done in a single take like from the time that they walk up the hill to the time that they go back and she gets into her car mm-hmm. is a single take yeah and so yeah. I think that that is it's easy to do really flashy dancing if you're just having like lots of cuts and just yeah, like you're right. pop hit it pop hit it you know uh, <laughs> are you going to make a boomerang of me doing that I wish I could I wish I could. I like how that's your interpretation of what other kind of dancing is. Pop, hit it, pop, hit it. <laughs> it's either sure. that or it's one long Right, time. if you ever see me dancing in the club, just know that in my head I'm going, pop, hit it, pop, hit it. <laughs> yeah, I think in that way it almost has a very, uh, it's almost like a play. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that it's the way it sort of kind of weaves in and out, uh, the way it makes you feel about time in general is mm-hmm. sort of similar. Um, you know, it has a lot of references to like, um, Hollywood in the fifties. Yes. I like got a lot of visual throwbacks and the iconography and, of old Hollywood is mm-hmm. all through it. And and his his love of jazz is like a very classic jazz, uh, Bob era style. And but it also doesn't feel like you're in a movie that doesn't know its time period. It's like mm-hmm. very clearly modern. Yeah, it's, it's modern. like he drives this Prius that like right. doesn't make any noise because that's what a Prius does. And like that's <laughs> such a weird sort of blending. But I but I think yeah. it really worked. I think it absolutely works. I think that, you know, like this is part of why this movie is such like a heat seeking missile aimed straight at the Oscars is because, you know, it is this love letter simultaneously to show business it's, mm-hmm. itself. It's a love letter to the city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It's a love letter to old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all those things rolled into one sort of like beautiful package. And if that piece of shit, the artist could win best picture a few years ago, then 
wow, should this win Best Picture this year? Um, you know, not saying that it deserves to win it over Moonlight, just saying that it probably will win it over Moonlight. Oh, interesting. You think so? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I guess um, so. Yeah, I, I, it seems almost inevitable uh, to me, unless they really decide to overcompensate um, for Oscar the years so of Oscar white. So White. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm, really, I'm actually torn over, you know, because it, it seems like Barry Jenkins is they might do a split where La La Land wins picture and Barry Jenkins wins director. Mm. Um, but, and as much as I'd love to see Barry Jenkins win that, I feel like as a directorial achievement, La La Land is kind of more, yeah, it's more of a, yeah. impressive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like it's just the scale and scope of what it is as an accomplishment. One thing that I keep coming back to is this idea that this is an original musical motion picture. Yeah. When's the last time? Yeah. That we had, a, a, you know, a, a movie musical that was not either a jukebox musical or based on a pre-existing stage musical. This is not an adaptation. This is an original mm-hmm. movie musical. And I don't know the last time we yeah, had I one don't of know. those. I'm thinking about that movie Romance and Cigarettes. Um, I don't even know what that is. It's from like 2002. It has a big ensemble cast like James Gandolfini and Susan Sarandon. And, um, and I think that that was an original score in that movie. But it was also this really tiny weird indie. So, hmm. um, you know, for, for like this kind of big, glossy, polished studio musical w- made with all original music, it's such an incredible accomplishment. Mm-hmm. One, did you see that thing? Vulture ran a, a think piece about how Damien Chazelle has like done more for the male music nerd in film <laughs> than, I can imagine. than anyone in history. Because So you like jazz, huh? <laughs> right. So, you know, so he's like, they're like, he's gone from... Introducing him, his first film was called like Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench or something like that, mm-hmm. and it was about like a some male music nerd trying to figure out if he can like date this girl. She doesn't like the same music he does, yeah. and then goes into Whiplash, right. uh, you know, which is about the sort of like you know the masochism and mastery of of being brilliant at music. And now we have the male music nerd as a swooning romantic lead yeah. <laughs> who is able to curb his his leading lady's um, tastes toward jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that's how he knows that's it's real. Uh, so, uh, what did you think about the chemistry between Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling? I think it's great, and I was just fighting with a friend last night um, who had the, life is a battle. Who had the gall to say that they have horrible chemistry? Really, I was shocked. I felt like it was very complimentary. I felt like it was very uh, antagonistic in a in a flirty way. Yeah, exactly. That's how they. That's their vibe. Yeah. You know, I think that they are such a natural screen pairing. You know, that's why they've been together in three separate movies now. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're Hepburn and Tracy, but I'm not saying they're not. <laughs> uh, I think they're just so great together, and um, and I think that you know, because like she kind of has that like you're annoying, I hate you vibe. And he has a mm-hmm. kind of like, whatever, I'm too cool anyway vibe. And, uh, you know, and they just play off of each other really, really well. Like you, and and they don't actually, the other thing about them is that they don't have heat. They don't have like heat together. Mm-hmm. La La Land mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. a super mm-hmm. chaste movie. Yeah. This is like, there's not a bit, there's no like, they're going fuck. You know, there's no, never, there's, there's never, there's none of that. There's no sex. There's no implied sex. No. There's no sex in their eyes when they look at no. each other. Like, it's just, it's not that. So it's kind of like, so it really is a throwback to old Hollywood in that sense, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, that was kind of what they went for then was like, you know, something that was chaste. They couldn't have it be too suggestive. And um, so. Which was, which was refreshing because it just felt like you're always waiting for that scene in a movie. And mm -hmm. now because it's like you're expecting it, it feels 
you know, it, it feels almost unrealistic. If I saw them having a sex scene, I would be probably upset by it. I don't think that I would want to see it. <laughs> um, so, you know, so it was, yeah, it is that kind of, um, you know, they have this kind of one-upsmanship with each other. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it feels like a battle of equals. And they have... Yeah, it's um, almost like a Hepburn and Cary Grant kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. right. And the important thing is... <laughs> Let's focus on what's um, here. And, uh, you know, and they really go toe-to-toe in this movie. Hers is ultimately the more special performance. Yes. They give her a lot yeah. more to do. She has a very broad emotional range to play in this movie, and she's mm-hmm. very generous with her emotions in this movie. And, uh, it's a, you know, it's a big performance, but, you know, it really hits. But what about the end, man? Wasn't that crushing? That was a crushing <laughs> end. That was a crushing There's end. definitely a lot about life and opportunities and choices. and Yeah. And really... This- yeah. This was on Sunday. Uh, again, I don't think I told you this yet, but um, at one point, uh, so Jan Wall, noted hat lady, oh right, and TV film and critic, Quentin Tarantino, um, uh, sparrer, spar- sparring partner, um, was really gunning hard for La La Land to win everything, which I could have predicted. I sure, think I yeah. did predict, and she was like, "Moonlight is fine, but you know, it's a sad movie, and I can't take these sad endings. I just don't want any more sad endings. I'm sorry, I'm not in the mood for it. it makes me a bad film critic, whatever." La La Land, I love, love, love. Just flew it out of the theater. I loved every second of it because I love a happy ending. And then Ing- what? And, and then Ingu was sitting next to me, and she was like, "It has a sad ending, Jan. <laughs> Moonlight has a happy ending. Yeah, it does." Jan's like, "Well, I don't know if that's true. I don't feel that way." That's like, oh, "Are we post facts now, Jan? Is that, are we also post facts in this room?" Um, so she not post facts when she accused Quentin Tarantino of like causing violence in the streets of Florida or something. <laughs> so yeah, so not to give away too much about the ending of La La Land, we're not going to say anything about the actual ending. Um, but you know, but it makes you question every decision you've ever made. <laughs> it does, it does. And uh, if you can stand uh, for five minutes after it's over, you're you're stronger than us because <laughs> um, we were just puddles. Uh, just kidding, I didn't cry, never do. But. Um, she is the, um, in, in many ways, the Oscar frontrunner uh, mm-hmm. for, for yeah. Best Actress for this film. And, and it's sort of like, it's like the archetypal ingenue role. Um, it, she's just playing this this classic character that Hollywood loves and loves to see and loves to see played well and loves mm-hmm. to reward. Um, so, uh, so I think she has a very good chance. I think this is more than I think any of us could have expected from her. Like, I think we all knew that she was a you know super promising, super strong actress, but this is un- nothing she's done suggested the full, like just the vibrant mm-hmm. range of emotion that she has in this film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, and her Oscar clip is the performance of the song audition. Um, and she really turns up uh, in that one. Um, I felt that the storyline was also incredibly relatable. I think that it's in a, it's in a weird place in time uh, that, that they're very particular and that might not be relatable. You know, it's, she's working trying to get in Hollywood. He's working trying to get into the professional music scene. Um, but just just how you how the decisions that you make and then you think you're doing the right thing and then it ends up taking you down a path you don't know and you sort of have to make certain choices and you don't even know what the repercussions are yet um, was incredibly relatable and really sweet and, and very simple. I think that 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 simplicity makes it um, yeah. a very complicated and bright and big um, you know with with so much uh, with effects and with dancing and with music but the, the story was so basic it, it, it helped kept keep everything grounded yeah I mean I think that, and that's something that people have dinged it for too they're like it's not original it doesn't say anything new it doesn't have a story we haven't seen a million times and you know and I think that just because it's a familiar story doesn't mean that I think familiar stories are fine if they're told well right and if they're you know filmed well and acted well and this one is 
Yeah, it's a familiar story of kind of, you know, star-crossed love of sorts. Um, and, uh, you know, and we've seen it before, and there have been movies that have told almost this exact story. But that doesn't mean that this one doesn't tell it in a way that's really emotionally impacting. Right. Um, you know, and there are some really tough scenes uh, between the two of them that they both play really well. Mm-hmm. And This uh, movie is also very funny. Yeah, it also has a lot of humor in it um, and uh, and a lot of heart. And also John Legend, just for funsies. Yes. That was no really Chrissy, sadly. No. <laughs> what I wouldn't have given to also have Chrissy pop up. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so this is, you know, so that's one of the things that, you know, people dinged about. And, and I, I, I don't think it's groundbreaking in the story, but it kind of, it kind of just is what it is. Like, it's a bittersweet romantic musical. And it doesn't, you know, it tells a story that's as old as time. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's a throwback, but it's also its own story, its own film, its own voice. And, um, and just every detail is so meticulous mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so thought through. Uh, like, there's, there's, just, there's just nothing, like, it's in terms of building a world and in terms of, of writing a cinematic language and in terms of having a palette, like, to, that, you're, that you're painting from, like, this is completely realized to the nth degree mm-hmm. like there's yeah. there's and it's and it's it's you know people were someone called it gutsy on sunday i don't think it's gutsy but it is bold it's thoughtful to, yeah it's bold to take a take a risk in the sense of like making an original musical mm-hmm. and and just the creative confidence that it would take for him to be like i have this vision and there's really nothing out there exactly like it you know, I want to make an homage to Jacques Demy's films, and I want to have it set in modern-day Los Angeles, and I want to have this confluence of different iconography and different influences. But you know, it's it's just it's just pure cinema, um, yeah. and uh, and I think that it's yeah one of the best films of the year, and uh, and we'll definitely be talking about it when we get to our best of the year episode. And it is out now in San Francisco. Uh, what you said it's a slow rollout. Yep, gradual. It came out in New York and LA last Friday. It'll open in San Francisco and other uh, uh, second tier cities this week, and it'll gradually roll out for the rest of December. And it's rated PG 13 for language. And that brings us to movie number two uh, Collateral Beauty. When a successful New York advertising executive suffers a great tragedy, he seeks answers in the universe by writing letters to love, time, and death. Howard is a brilliant, creative, charismatic guy. He used to love life. Right now, he hates it. I try to talk to him. I try to reach him, and he's not there. I miss him. He writes letters. Who are they to? Howard doesn't write letters to people. He writes to things. Time. Love. Death. Kids write letters to Santa Claus. It doesn't mean they're crazy. No, this is therapeutic. This movie seems very upworthy-worthy. Jason, can you define collateral beauty for me? I can't because the movie never does. Uh, oh. The movie just, it gives you this terrible name. Worst name of any movie this year. Mm-hmm. Maybe worst name of any movie in like a decade. Hard to say, but I feel like that, it feels right. It feels accurate to say that. And this term, collateral beauty, is said by almost every character in the film really at one point or another is it like the name of the company they work at it is not no okay. it's just this thing that people keep saying as if it's a thing that we all know what they're talking about and i guess they want you to like oh it's a thinker like think about like so the the setup where it's first incepted into the movie is one character is in the hospital and their child is about to die 
and a stranger turns to them and you know asks who they're losing and then says uh don't forget to look at all the collateral beauty which is pretty mm. high on the list of fucked up random shit to say to somebody to whose stranger. child's about to die Way in the hospital. Wait a mansplain your child's death. Ugh. Look um, at the bright side. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't, I mean, like, collateral, I keep writing it as collateral damage. Yeah, of course. It's yeah, the only way we like use collateral. Do. Like you do. And, um, and so to think that, like, you know, in collateral damage, when we talk about that, we're talking about, you know, like, I- incidental things that are destroyed, um, you know, like, if you have, like, a target or whatever of a, let's say, a drone strike. Um, you know, and then you have the target, then you have things in addition to the target that are also hit, and that's a collateral damage. Sure. So to say to somebody, you're going through a horrible time right now, um, you know, and don't forget to look at the collateral beauty caused by that horrible time. I never would have realized how good the food is in this hospital cafeteria if it wasn't for my child dying. Is that what they mean? Did I use it right? Yeah, Look think, at that collateral I, I beauty. I think that, yeah, I think that it's, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't, and that's the thing, like, which is, in in some ways, it's like kind of a, a radical thing to suggest that somebody really um, look into the sort of like the spiritual dimensions of loss and find like a deeper understanding of the universe or something through that. But goddamn, is this movie not equipped to try to unpack any of that? So instead, just keep saying it like this kind of like upworthy, worthy buzz term. As if the audience mm. is going to go like, ah, oh, that's so true. <laughs> they might. Oh, God, they might. And like, if this movie does it for you, you're a horrible person. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. But I mean, it starts with what's basically a TED Talk from Will oh Smith. Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. It starts with him You're giving... Saying, I could have seen that coming. So the whole idea is that he is, you know, he is partner at this ad agency. And he has three other partners, Edward Norton, Kate Winslet, and Michael Pena. All-star cast. All-star cast. The whole movie is all-star cast, top to bottom. It's absurd. Um, And so it starts with him, you know, talking about like, you know, we do what we do because we understand the three abstractions that, yeah, they keep using this word abstractions. These three Mm. abstractions, you know, there's, there's life, there's time, and there's death. And these are the three abstractions that tie all of, you know, the human experience together. And he's, and, you know, so he's trying to explain, like, why they're such a funky, fresh company and why they're really <laughs> out there killing it in the game. And, you know, and you know, all these shots of everybody looking at him admiringly, like, oh, he's really speaking such wisdom to us about this. And I was so repulsed uh, throughout this entire scene. Um, so everyone's terrible. Uh, <laughs> so just a quick, quick bit of exposition. Everyone's terrible. Um, so anyway, so he has this whole setup. So just and they give us that so that they can a introduce us to this weird, stupid framework of these three themes that he keeps coming back to very, very clumsily. And also so we can see him when he was in his prime. So since then, he has had his young daughter has passed away. And as the majority of the movie takes place, that has happened two years in the past. He's mm-hmm. now two years past his child passing away. Um, and you know, which is of course an unimaginable loss. Sure. But they have somehow managed to create this character in a way that there's nothing recognizably human in his grief. So it's like it's it's been two years, and this character Howard is still like basically catatonic. He's mm. like he he and he he keeps going to work, and all he does is set up a series of elaborate domino displays. <laughs> that seems like. Uh... Uh, you're like you're like. Do of... people do things other than that at work? Yeah. <laughs> you're like in my office, that's the norm. Um, it sounds like he needs a, a page from the Bernard playbook on Westworld: How to cope oh, with your grief and go to work. Good. Go to work. That's what I'm saying. Go to work. 
So he still does go to work. And then that's the problem is that he keeps showing up and he doesn't talk to anybody. He just like makes these domino displays and his partners are just like, oh, like, you know, we're worried for him, but also he's tanking our company's value and we have, um, okay, we'll get back to that in a second. But so <laughs> it makes him, it makes him unsympathetic. You hate this guy. You're like fucking snap out of it. Uh, you know, like, all due respect to your loss, it's been two years. Stop walking around like you got kicked by a goddamn mule. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, he, and there's lots of, like, Will Smith doing, like, the angry tears where he's, like, glaring through teary eyes. Oh, and, you know, there's a scene where he gets on his bicycle and drives into traffic like, fuck everything! But, you know, but doesn't actually say that because it has to be a family film. Sure. Um, and you're just like, oh, fuck you, dude. Uh, or he just, like, you know, sits in his apartment by himself and Kate Winslet's bringing him food and he won't answer the door and won't talk to her. And, you know, like, it's like, it's, it's Uh, just not believable. It's just not believable. Like, we all know people who have suffered intense loss. And this is part of what makes this movie so bogus. Right. I mean, because we wouldn't still be friends with them if two years later they didn't snap out. Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't know this person because we stopped talking to them a few years back. Look, we never Uh, said we were good friends. We never did. We never did. But uh, so, so there's, you know, so there's that whole story. But then what the actual point of the plot is is we're supposed to care about how the ad agency is not making money anymore, and it's and it's 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 fallen. Oh into, no! I know it's fallen into disrepair, um, and they have an offer um, uh, that which we're told is as good as it's going to get, but he won't speak to them, and so even though he's there all the time, and he won't sign off on it, and so and the urgency that they come up with, because you see each partner also represents, which the trailer lays out very plainly, each partner mm-hmm. represents one of these three abstractions. Edward Norton represents love because his young daughter is estranged from him because he cheated on her mom um, and they're divorced. Um, Kate Winslet represents time because she wants to get pregnant, but her ovaries are old. Um, And that's literally her entire arc Um, is like, well, the cloak's ticking, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) That's pretty much Winslet in a nutshell in this movie. Um, And then Michael Pena is where the real urgency comes in because he is dying of aggressive cancer. And so, um, which they don't do anything to make him look in any way like he's suffering from. He just looks like ruddy-faced Michael Pena. Okay, well, um, that's good at least. But, uh, so, but yeah, so, and he's... Um, wait, so, wait, wait. So, one of the partners is dying of cancer, mm-hmm. but he can't get it, he can't get it together to help this guy have some money before he passes? Yeah, and I think the idea is that, like, they're like, oh, well, we haven't, you know, I think we're supposed to think that maybe he doesn't know, or, like, uh, he hasn't told okay, him, because he's kind okay. of keeping it to himself. Um, anyway, so one day, um, through a kind of random meet cute, they happen upon this theater troupe, um, played by Helen Mirren, Keira Knightley, and a young African American gentleman whose name I don't know. And uh, <laughs> they, um, so, and they get this insane, truly insane, or should I say, the screener had this insane idea that they should use this theater troupe to gaslight Howard. Um, into thinking what yes because he has written these letters as you heard in the trailer he writes letters to and they have like this investigator following him played by the great Anne Dowd following him around and finds out that you know he has he writes these letters to these three abstractions because he's just that much of a fucking douchebag um so he writes these letters that only like a fucking angry self-styled creative ceo would write like dear time fuck you um <laughs> and they've somehow all gotten these letters and they're like okay here's what he's doing well you know, let's just have a theater troupe pretend to be him. We're going to gaslight him. And we're going to have him be like accosted in public by these actors who are pretending to be these three abstractions come to life. 
and we're going to film him talking with them and we're going to edit them out of the film and uh, we're going to make it seem like he's a crazy person and so that we'll have so that he'll have to like sign away the company to us wait a minute that's the premise of the movie wait a minute yeah and i know and the trailer makes it think that you you're made to think that kate that helmir is actually playing right death. but no that's not for a second in the movie what you think well i am so offended <laughs> So these people that are his friends are trying to break him out of this funk that he's in. Yeah. um, Are going to trick him into thinking he's having these moments with Mm -hmm. these abstractions. Right. But in reality, they're using that to make to make him seem crazy so they can take his company away. Yes. And that's one of the problems. What? That's one of the problems of this movie um, is that there's no one likable in it. You don't actually root for anybody. Yeah. Like, in theory, like, your, your very basic humanity doesn't want to see Michael Pena die of cancer. Mm-hmm. But, like, they're all doing this thing, and they all feel conflicted about it, but they still proceed with it. Whose idea was this? Um, I don't even, like, they, is they have this weird, like, meeting with the, these actors that they have discovered in this empty theater. And I they mean, all just kind of hatch could, it together. would never think that that... And it's not like one of those movies where you're like, whoa, that's so genius. It's like this crazy idea. I would never, this is the worst no, idea I've ever heard. It is. It strains credulity, to say the least. Uh, so that's the A story. The okay. B story is um, that Will Smith has kind of been circling this support group for grieving parents who've lost children. The support group leader is played by Naomi Harris of Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who reminds us all that she is very beautiful <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> uh, she is very luminous. And um, and then he's kind of just like circling, like, and we're kind of as the viewer, you're like hoping that he'll go in and like deal with his shit and talk to them. But he's like, he's very evasive, and she kind of clocks him and is like, oh, this guy needs help, and um, and he's you know, so they kind of are in this kind of push pull relationship. Mm-hmm. So that's like the B story. The A story, yeah, is, is his partners um, and these actors who are kind of conspiring against this guy. But the actors all take it very, very seriously. So the actors aren't like, you know, their intention is, is portrayed as being like somehow noble because they're like, well, if I embody the truth of these abstractions, then I'm going to help him. And uh, and this is where the movie misses an opportunity where it could have been hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Had the movie decided to skewer the vanity and selfishness of the, the average actor. <laughs> Um, it could have been so funny, mm-hmm. uh, but instead, every actor just bar- you know barrages him with their own little TED talks, um, and then uh, and you know and it's there to try to you know force him to be a better person and to face uh, what has happened and to see the collateral beauty in it all. Um, so it is. Ugh. God sounds unbearable and it's so upsetting because the the cast is so you know so incredible like so many I mean this is it it's it's an all-star holiday tearjerker mm-hmm. is what it is it's set in Christmas time the whole thing is is set in like snowy New York in December and it's directed by David Frankel who made the devil wears Prada and you know he he has a certain there's like an elegance to his filmmaking mm-hmm. and you know and the movie is of course very earnest um but and it has this incredible cast but you're just so angry because you're like why are these people all in this movie did you actually read the screenplay and think that it was worthwhile and i don't know if this is one of those things where maybe um as it was originally conceived maybe it was darker maybe it was more of a comedy maybe it was like a satire um but what they have given us is just pap it's just pap uh it's 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 woof and it has a final scene that is 
a groaner that you mm, maybe are thinking throughout the movie like, oh God, I wonder if it's gonna be the kind of movie that's going to have X, Y, Z reveal at the end. And it is that movie. And you're like, oh, fuck you, movie. No. Oh my God. Um, no. It's, 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 it's upsetting. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's one of the worst movies of the year. <laughs> it is one of the worst movies of the year. So you're giving it a send it back? Send it A hard back. send it back. A hard SIB. Well, that was Collateral Beauty, which I'm glad we won't have to say again. Uh, let's move on to our third movie, shall we? Let's. Uh, it's called Girls Lost. Yes. The friendship between three girls is tested after they plant a special flower whose nectar allows them to experience life as boys. So this is a Swedish film? I thought it was Danish, it's but Swedish, um, it yeah. is Swedish. Um, so we don't have a trailer for it. We don't. Um, Jason still hasn't learned Swedish no. to translate it for us. No, one of these days. Um, definitely different than I assume Collateral Beauty was. Um, what were you What were you expecting from this movie? I mean, I feel like it was pretty straightforward in the explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like it uh, sort of played out how you expected it to? I think that you know it. It did feel like something that I. It was both referential of things I'd seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, like it did remind me of The Craft. It did remind me of Foxfire. Um, you know, so which are two movies that are very near and dear to my heart. So I was <laughs> thrilled in that sense. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was, it's imaginative. It's imaginative, mm-hmm. this mix of sort of like, um, you know, somewhat this this magical realism, supernatural inflected kind of thing of this magical flower mm-hmm. who gives these young women, you know, the ability to just change into a, a boy for like 24 hours or for overnight or, you know, whatever the case may be. Until they fall asleep, I think. Until they fall asleep, is that what it is? Yeah, when they fall asleep. Yeah, they fall asleep. That's right. Yeah, they fall asleep and they wake up and they're girls again. Yeah. And it sort of has that similar uh, feel of these three girls are outcasts. They're outcasts. They're bullied. They're they're harassed sexually in school. They're all queer. Um, Yeah. So they they have themselves pretty much. uh, They're an island in school. And if apparently, if if any of us, I've always thought that Sweden was a very accepting place, but (laughs) as depicted (laughs) by this film, teenagers teenagers are awful. Everywhere, Everywhere, even in Sweden. And even a female gym teacher is not sympathetic. I was like, no. how dare you? You know you've been where these girls are right now. Um, I found that realistic. Did you? I found that realistic. I always found teachers in high school to be kind of like easily swayed by the bullies of the class. Yeah, I that's a probably lot true. firm teachers that stood up to bullies. And they all start calling that one girl boobless while she's yeah, running. terrible. Um, these Mm-mm-mm. girls are, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a pretty... Um, it's a relatable situation they find themselves in, yeah. and um, and so you know, so it's interesting. I think where where it comes into the craft is it's a story about yeah female teenage outsiders in high school who discover a power um, that comes mm-hmm. from a supernatural place. Mm-hmm. Um, but this also is where this movie becomes a clever commentary on sort of like gender identity and sexual politics because that power is the power of male privilege. Yeah. Um, because they become boys and they experience what it's like to be a boy and they get a taste of boy confidence. And, um, and so once they get a taste of that, uh, that kind of changes them and they come back with like a lot more swagger when Mm -hmm. they're girls and they're not willing to take shit anymore. They've had this taste of what it's like to be like this, like the ruling sex and they're able to just like, Oh, okay. But this is where it branches off yet further. So that's how Mm -hmm. it's like the craft. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because you have these like yeah, these outside girls who are like standing up for themselves, 
um, and um, and who are like telling off all the bullies and popular kids and all that stuff. Um, but for for two of the three girls, um, it's just kind of this fun experiment to find out what it's like to be a boy and to have that change the way that you maybe accepted how you've been subjugated as a as a as a girl. Mm-hmm. But for one of them, it ends up uh, sort of she really likes being a boy and and wants to stay a boy. And she begins to realize through this that maybe um, her gender identity is not female, as yeah. she had always believed, because she resonates so much with being a boy. Mm-hmm. It's, she had sort of had some some hints at the beginning before they even like fell on the flowers. She said that she felt like she didn't belong mm-hmm. um, in her body, but it, I don't think it also I don't think it was clear to her what that meant mm-hmm. uh, until after they started playing with the flower. Right, which, I mean, let's talk about that for a minute. <laughs> Lots of shots of these teenage lesbians caressing the petals and licking and touching the petals mm-hmm. of the flower and enjoying its, I'll say, secretion? Say it. Secretion. There you go. The flower secretion. So there's there's some there's some head, there's also a lot of CG butterflies. In this movie. <laughs> so it's maybe yeah. maybe it's it's not the most subtle with uh, anything about it, um, and, but especially its symbolism. Yeah, definitely. This reminded me a lot of coming out, sort of in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember sort of having my first girlfriend, and and once we like had our first kiss, I felt like she was like oh that was fun this is great and like you know we kept dating for a while but um uh, but i felt the weight of what that meant so mm. heavily um that i think that it's very similar to the the main character here kim and how she kind of goes with the flower and, and realizes that she can't go back and and this is kind of a different situation because there's there's like a finite amount of like flower available so flower secretion uh, yeah uh-huh. um so she kind of comes to this point where she has discovered who she is and then the flower is running out of time. Yes. Um, so she's kind of left with this decision she has to make. And I found the end of the movie was a little, mm, could have been a little bit better. Yeah. Um, it definitely leaves you in the middle of the road, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. Um, you know, she's just left with some kind of heavy decisions and questions. And it, given the fact that I don't think she really understood about like uh, the transgender community at the beginning of the flower situation, mm-hmm. that like she may have felt like there was nowhere to go at this point. Right. Um, which is a little, um, which is very sad, and and, yeah. and happens to um, to to a lot of yeah. People in so the it does kind of so yeah. But it, it would have been since the whole thing is just a fable, it's an allegory anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know that it would have killed it to just end on a hopeful note. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, it might as well just yeah, gone so all that, the way so that young trans kids can watch this movie yeah. and embrace it. Like it's so close to being that kind of movie. Um, and maybe they still will because I mean, like if you're a moody emo trans kid, maybe you'll be like, exactly. Like it should end in this kind of sad, uh, pensive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, but it, it could have given just, just, just a little bit more, a little bit if, more if, if, if it even had been moving forward, <laughs> let's say rather than being in the middle of the road, um, that would have been something. Um, but so one interesting thing about this movie that we haven't seen before is that it really it layers queerness upon queerness upon mm-hmm. transness upon queerness um, because whenever uh, so Kim is this protagonist who begins to understand that she um, through experience of being a boy that she may identify as male uh, she once she is a boy and oh this whole time we've been led to believe, like there are all these these three queer girls and one of the girls is actually her girlfriend mm-hmm. um, uh, Momo. 
But uh, but then when she turns into a boy, she kind of catches the eye of this other boy who is this kind of like this like kind of like rough trade little <laughs> like white Swedish thug, and uh, and they kind of. I kept waiting for what eventually happened to happen because, like, they were, like, fucking, like, eyeballing the shit out of each other. Right. Um, and I was like, okay, this is, like, super homoerotic. How interesting that now that she, as a trans boy, that she's also, like, a trans gay boy mm-hmm. um, and that she's, you know, super into this guy. I feel like that's something that, uh, that part of the story also seems very familiar with what happens in a lot of trans experiences. Is, is that, that right? Yeah, especially, I don't know, maybe not especially, I'm not familiar, but mm-hmm. um, I've, I for, from female to male, you often mm-hmm. find then like kind of being attracted to men in a way that hmm. you didn't know, know before. Hmm. Um, and, and that sort of breaks up a lot of relationships where it's like your hmm. partner has kind of gone through, gone with you wow. through the your journey and then you kind of come out of the other side um, with like a maybe like a newfound or maybe something yeah. that was like hidden before, wow. um, like a, an attraction to men. Oh, wow. um, so I felt like that was a, a really felt, interesting way to kind of okay. cover that. Um, I was worried that it was well. like regressive. No, I, I was like, no. why is it about a boy now? Um, but that, so that was actually more true to life. Yeah, I think that, oh, that's. Wow. Kind of, I think that's a pretty common experience. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Um, I'll try to find some articles for you. Thank you. I just know it like anecdotally. I'm like, oh, sure, I'm yeah, people, sure. Right? I mean, I do actually see like because wherever I, you know, on like Grinder and Scruff and those kinds of apps, like you will always see a handful of of trans men, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that you know conventional wisdom would suggest that a lot of F to M trans begin as lesbians, mm-hmm. and so I'm always so kind of I'm just like I'm like so I'm like so this was a heterosexual biological woman who you know turn who who still identified uh gender identity wise as as a, as male mm-hmm. how fascinating um and uh and so that makes sense to this idea that like the, this thing gets shaken up you're kind of like when you you know through transitioning that your sexual uh taste could change with it mm-hmm. yeah it's so. also it's also like interesting the way that like uh, when as Kim Cha is taking more of the flower she becomes more aggressive as well yes yeah um so I mean, it's definitely like a pretty clear symbolism, I think, for for testosterone mm-hmm. um, for taking tea, right? Um, yeah, which was, which was interesting. Yeah, and you know, I think that you know they they do through the the gender swapping because we see them just switch back and forth, and there are different actors. There are female actors and there are male actors to play mm-hmm. each of these characters, um, and uh, and you know they start to come back to being girls with new insights. Um, just as when they're boys, they still have female insight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like there's a scene where Kim kind of, as a boy, like rebuffs this gross guy for talking about a woman in a really yeah. derogatory sexual way. And uh, so it's just interesting to imagine the the collective wisdom that they have right, right. Um, from having occupied both experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the movie could have gone more into that, but ultimately it wants to be about Kim's journey and the whole movie is it's not really about this kind of like gender bending fun the whole movie actually no. is an allegory about the trans experience mm-hmm. um which uh which i think it's a really imaginative way to tell that story yeah, it was um even if a little uh on the nose at times <laughs> and um that and flower man and you know and the homoerotic stuff was 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 pretty spicy um which unfortunately for me i was watching on the bus home from work <laughs> so i felt very awkward watching two teenage boys strip their underwear and jump in the water together um i definitely made, like, oh, jason's being jason made my screen very small uh, <laughs> that point minimize minimize which was te- which was too bad because that was a beautifully shot sequence mm-hmm. when they're in the water together oh my gosh 
Uh, so, uh, but you know, this is some, one of the things that they learned about men is that, um, a lot of men on some level do want to fuck each other and, um, <laughs> but you should not remind them of that. Mm-hmm, um, right. and if they don't want to talk about it, don't make them. <laughs> Can't force it. Can't force it. Uh, I mean, overall, this is a small Swedish film, um, being put out by Wolf Video. Wolf Video. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised. Yes. I felt like the acting was good. Um, you know, it's, I've never heard of any of these, um, no. young Swedish, uh, Mm-mm. women before. Um, yeah, I, I think you, it, it's a complicated subject and mm-hmm. they, they boiled it down pretty well. Um, yeah. I think that I've started off with like, uh, when they first start to get into the discovering what the flower does, I, I, feel like everyone has that like it's like that fairy tale mm-hmm. wouldn't it be cool if you could do this thing yeah and it just changed everything and you could see what it's like and yeah uh and then and then i think that it's a really good entry point for people yeah. to sort of maybe have a little bit more understanding of like the trans experience i think so too i think this movie has such value for so many mm-hmm. um i think in particular for young for young queer people i think that mm-hmm. like yeah. this this movie should be distributed very widely um, mm-hmm. To young queer people, um, and I think that you know, for anybody, because it kind of forces you in 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 the same way that as characters are learning um, different points of view as they're having this amazing experience of jumping back and forth from male to female identities. Uh, you know, so also watching this movie kind of helps you understand. Uh, like when people say, like, "Oh, well, there's there's what's the real difference between the male experience and the female experience?" Like, mm-hmm. "Oh, there's no such thing as male privilege. There's no such thing as the subjugation of women." Uh, or, you know, like, uh, you know, just kind of like it lays out so plainly in ways you can't really argue. Like, right. here are the different experiences they have. Like, here are how people talk to them differently when they're boys. Here are mm-hmm. how people look at them differently when they're boys. Here are the things that they can do as boys they're not allowed to do as girls. Right. And, um, you know, so and uh, and then also through that into this very um, accessible narrative about like what it really is to be trans. Uh, so I think that it's a super valuable movie and, uh, it is well, it is well done and, you know, it's, it's a little rough around the edges here or there, sure. but, but, but it's so, but you have to applaud the ambition of what it's swinging for mm-hmm. and just the imaginative way that it tells its story, which is a story that we all kind of need. So I think we're giving it a binge it. Yeah. We're going to go binge it on this. Um, and, uh, by the way, this is a, a film that you can get on iTunes oh, uh, really? now. So this is a theatrical VOD release. Oh, excellent. So you can see it in your local art house theater, or you could get it on iTunes. That is Girls Lost. Girls Lost. Is that Which, a rating? Uh, no. It would be probably R. Yeah, I would say it's an R. It doesn't really have any nudity. That was something that I was most terrified about in the bus. I was like, please don't oh, yeah. show these naked teenagers, please. <laughs> please. Um, there's like a little bit of a uh, little bit of fighting, a little there's bit of uh, gunplay. There's, there's some there's some sex stuff. Um, so I would say it's, it's probably an R. It's probably an R. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as Jason said, it's available now on VOD. Uh, that's our last movie of the week. We had one binge it, two, two binges it, two binges it, <laughs> two bingets, two binge I. And one send it back. Send it the fuck back. Not bad. Um, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast uh, if you haven't already, and give us a rating on iTunes if you have a minute. You can follow Jason on Twitter at excessfaggage and also on our website, thebinge.us. Mm-hmm. And I am at Fight Balance. Thank you so much. Bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There, there goes, goes the, the binge. binge.